Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Darkness Collective. Visit darkness.org to discover more shows like this one. The Darkness Awaits. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Warning. If you haven't figured out that the Wicked Library has strong themes of an adult, sometimes violent and decidedly scary nature, then by all means, keep listening. Go on, it's just that you're not going to complain about it. Oh, you can try, but you'll be scoffed at and ridiculed mercilessly by the host, the narrators, the producers, and you could bet your dangling participle me. Go ahead, try it. You're not going to like it one little bit, but our millions of listeners will eat it up. (laughs) And that's not hyperbole, kiddies. So there's your warning. Enjoy the show, kiddies. Welcome to episode number 816 of the Wicked Library. As always, before we get started today, a big thank you to our new and ongoing supporters. If you enjoy the show and want to help us keep making it, you should support us on Patreon or thewickedlibrary.com. Not only do all of our supporters get a completely ad-free show, they also get the highest quality version of the show, which means a higher bitrate MP3 to hear the wickedness even more clearly. And access to our archives with the first five seasons, official bookmarks, and depending upon the level of support, you'll get to hear our bonus stories before the free listeners. Plus, at the $5 a month and above level, we're adding an exclusive new show only available to our supporters called Wicked Fairy Tales, as told by your librarian. The first episode story is included here at the end of the show after today's author interview, so you will get a little taste of what we're making. And at the $10 a month and above level, you'll get to hear our other exclusive show, available only to our supporters, The Private Collector. Our next episode of Frank Enfield's ongoing adventure is due out next week. Sign up today at patreon.com forward slash wicked library or thewickedlibrary.com forward slash subscribe to become a friend of the Wicked Library and, of course, a friend of the Librarian. We are working very hard this season to make the show sustainable for Season 9 and beyond, and we do need your help to do that. A big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show. And of course, we love hearing how and why you listen to the wicked tales we share. Oh, and don't forget, we're looking for your stories for Season 9. Sam and the Librarian are all caught up and looking for more. Find our updated submission guidelines and submit your own story over at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash submissions. 
Also, since many of you have asked, we do have Wicked Library mugs, laptop cases, tote stickers, shirts, hoodies, and more available. And if you pick up something between now and August 28th and use the code TWL30OFF at checkout, you'll get 30% off your order. You'll enter that code by clicking on have a gift card or coupon code on the secure checkout page. That's TWL30OFF. Go ahead. Share your shameless love for the show by plastering our name all over everything you own. Thank you so much to all of you for listening and supporting the show and our contributors. Please, as I always ask, if you enjoy the stories you hear, find the work of the authors and buy their work. It does keep them making more. You can also find links to them and their work at thewickedlibrary.com. Today's episode features a story by returning author Julia Benali, followed by an interview with the author. This story is told by Mike Delgadio, Mary Murphy, Evan Schmidt, and yours truly. The Wicked Fairy Tale at the end of the show after the author interview is told by your librarian and scored by our resident composer, Nico Viteze, who also scored the main story today. Now, let's get wicked. Hello, kiddies. You know who I am by now. Sit down and relax while you can. Your librarian has taken such good care of you for seven seasons. I see no need to lighten up for season eight. Hold on to your breath, kiddies. It might just be your last. Once again, it's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> the Hairy Man by Julia Benali It was time to hunt again. Jay hadn't shot anything that morning, but he surely would this evening. All that hiking in the raw cold through stickers and up mountains while lugging a 30-30 on his shoulder couldn't be for nothing. Now he just had to make sure nobody from work recognized him, because he had called in sick so that he could hunt. You're gonna get your elk today, he told himself as he slipped on hiking boots in his room. Jay was a tall, wiry man in his early twenties with short black hair. Devoid of the damaging signs of a drinker, he possessed the ideal features of an Apache. Chiseled, square jaw, high cheekbones, and twinkling black eyes. There wasn't a lazy bone in his body. Just then, his 16-year-old brother, Derry, poked his head in, sneaky-like. Jay, he whispered. You almost ready? Derry sported a pudgy belly. Silky hair fell over his low forehead and down his neck. He was the shortest joker in his class, in the entire high school, actually. The girls said he smelled. He couldn't play basketball, but he could tear up metal gear like a boss. Don't look like you're sneaking, Jay said. May I see you. If their eight-year-old niece came, she'd do nothing but complain she was tired, hungry, and then she would have to go to the bathroom. That would mean one of them would have to supervise her, which meant postponing the hunt until she was good and ready. Besides, they didn't take little girls to the bathroom. It was indecent. Go out and act natural-like, said Jay. Where is she anyway? 
No sooner did he ask than a pink-clad girl kicked the door open and jumped into the room. Messy black braids were smashed beneath a pink fishing hat. She was neither a stick nor a ball, but somewhere in between. She boasted a pair of black-rimmed glasses with a tiny sticker of Kirby on one side. I'm ready! May brandished a two-foot hunting knife with a wicked curve. Let's kill. Derry jumped back. Put that away before you chop off Derry's balls, Jay said. Hey! Derry glared at Jay. I'll be in the car! May sped from the room. Nobody could make her stay. Derry squared his shoulders. I'll throw her out. And he marched after her. Jay didn't reply. May was in the car and that was where she was going to stay, no matter what anyone said. He could probably just not go and creep away later, but then it would be too late. With an exasperated sigh, he donned his hunting orange, a flimsy vest that would keep him safe from being shot by other hunters. He headed out to his car, a simple four-door that used to be blue. If only he had a truck instead of this half-broken res ride, meaning a junky trash can of a vehicle, bulging with empty pop cans and old wrappers. It always broke down, and it smelled. He definitely couldn't ask Sarah to marry him until he had a Dodge Ram. His bride couldn't ride in a slop house on wheels. Derry was standing outside of it, yelling at May. Get out right now. Never! May held up the knife. Come any closer and I'll skewer you right through that pop belly. Derry gritted his teeth. You can't come. Yeah, I can. And I'll tell Jay's boss where he is, too, if I can't come. Jay went livid. You little brat. I'll make you hike all over the place until you cry. An awful grin spread over May's face. I bet I won't cry. Jay's eyes turned to slits. Let's see you not cry then. Hold my gun, don't bump the scope, and don't drink nothing while you're holding it. He shoved the gun at May, who propped it up so the barrel aimed at the roof. Derry retained his gun. May might pour something down the barrel. Get in the car, Derry. Jay growled, and then they were off. When's Grant coming home? Derry referred to their older brother, who was May's father. He can take a belt to May's butt. He'll take it to yours when he finds out you lied to me about hunting. May said. Shut up already, Jay snarled, hoping May would get lost in the woods. If he made her tired enough, she might not want to come tomorrow. The hunting grounds were about 15 minutes away, on one of the many dirt roads that branched off from the highway. The pine trees were always green, but the lush vegetation of the summer had gone, leaving the forest floor a brown carpet of dead needles and patches of white grass. The sticker bushes were thriving. Jay parked the car next to a mountain. That tired feeling right before the evening had set in, not enough time to hike out May's annoying energy. They probably wouldn't see anything, let alone shoot something. May was just so pink and loud. Jay got out of the car. Give me my gun. He glanced at his brother. Derry. Derry. Derry was fast asleep. May rolled her eyes and smacked Derry on the head. Hey, booty brain, time to go. She jumped out of the car and slammed the door, breathing deeply of the fall air. Her breath floated away like a miniature ghost. Derry jerked out of his doze. Jay rolled his eyes. What are you doing sleeping? May's ready before you. He straightened up. How could they conduct this hunt with May tagging along? Before he could decide, May zipped to his side. I'm going with you, she said. I have to tell you about the new story I made up about Kirby. Jay recoiled in horror. 
You're not supposed to talk at all. He had heard about that pink gumball-looking thing until his ears had fallen off. It was disgusting that May wore pink because Kirby was her hero. You'll chase all the elk away. So whisper if you have to say something. Okay. She bent low and scanned the shady forest. The area seemed strangely clear despite the abundance of sticker bushes. The pines were spaced equally apart as if they had been planted. She could see far back among the trees. I want to see you kill something. Derry can't even eat his pee in the toilet. Jay snorted as Derry stumbled out of the car. What? said Derry. You and May hike up this side. I'm going around the other side. Derry glanced at May as if she were a maggot. I ain't going with her. Shut up, Derry, Jay barked. May will keep you awake. Derry's a butt, May said. You wanted to come, you do as I say. Man. Derry grumbled and marched up the hill. May ran after him as Jay got back in the car, placed his gun in the front seat, and drove to the other side of the mountain. Hopefully, Derry and May would spook the elk to him. Meanwhile, Derry practically ran up the mountain, hoping to torture May. The little girl gasped and dripped with sweat, determined to keep up. Why was Derry hurrying? He looked ready to faint. They reached the summit in a few minutes. Derry bent over and clutched his belly. The... He gasped. The elk are probably to Jay now. Don't get grossed out and start crying when you see the blood all over the place. The elk sometimes don't die right away. And they cry. It was a vindictive little tirade, meant to teach the little brat not to mess with man stuff. I'll catch you when you faint, May said. Derry glared at her. Can you keep up with me going down? It was more of a challenge than a question. It's really steep. I ain't gonna catch you if you fall. He marched away like he was Mangus Colorado himself. May darted after him like a tiny demon. Galloping down the steep, slippery incline, Derry lifted his proud, manly head and refused to look where he was going. Jaw tight, May scrambled after him, grabbing fiercely onto sticks and branches to keep from falling. The sun began to set. Derry pulled away from her, but May continued on at her slower pace, eyeing his retreating form with scorn. You better hurry up, May, Derry sang out. Bigfoot might be up here looking for little brats. He chuckled, and then he tripped. He had been going too fast and couldn't steady himself. With a startled cry, he flew headlong down the mountain. He sounded like a charging bear, but instead of growling, he squeaked in pain all the way down. May sat down laughing, slapping her knees. Jay's voice shouted somewhere down below. The air echoed too much for her to make out the words. A few minutes later, Jay called her name, and she spotted him hiking towards her. A small smile creased his lips. Come on, he said. <laughs> Derry jacked himself up. <laughs> We're going home now. He pulled her up, and they carefully descended the rest of the way. The afterglow lay like blush on the trees by the time they reached the bottom. Derry sat on the hood, gingerly nursing his wounds. <laughs> I almost lost my posterity. And you're laughing, Derry moaned. <laughs> Jay smacked him with his hat. Get in the car if you can sit. He hit a smirk as he got in and started the engine. Four giant bull elk loped across the road. <gasps> May squealed, yanking her hat around her ears. <gasps> Look! The beasts halted at the sound of her boisterous voice and stared at them. Jay's eyes widened in surprise. Where had these come from? Forgetting to stuff his ears in the excitement, he rolled down the glass, leaned his gun on the windowsill, and aimed at the biggest bull's lungs. He pulled the trigger. 
Everything went silent as Jay went temporarily deaf. He didn't even hear his gun go off. Did he hit it? Derry's mouth moved silently. May leaped out of the car and chased after the elk with Derry on her heels. Jay still couldn't hear himself. His brother and niece didn't seem to hear him either. Making sure his tag was still in his pocket, he raced after the pair. By the time he caught up to them, he could hear his breath and crunching pine needles under his boots. You got it! You got it! May jumped up and down before the crumpled form of the bull elk. Not far away, its fellow bulls stared. They knew they were safe from the hunters now. It's a seven by seven, Derry said, pulling May back. Don't go near it. Wait for it to be dead. Their squabble had melted in the joy of the kill. Jay smiled. One of us has to stay here and guard the elk, and the other one can go get Jimmy. Jimmy had a working truck and a group of guys at his command to help gut and quarter the elk. I'll get him, said Derry. I want to stay with Jay, said the little girl. No. Jay peered closer at the horns. Go home and get warm. I'm warm. It's going to get really cold. But I have to see. May removed her hat. I hunted for it and I'm the one who saw it. Jay glanced at his kill and then at May who looked so hopeful. Please, please, please let me stay. I want to see you gut the elk. He didn't feel like she was much of a brat anymore. All right, but go with Derry. You can come back. Yes. May skipped back to the car. Derry hurried after her. He looked pretty happy considering his condition. Jay sat by the bull to wait for it to stop twitching. But then Derry shouted, Jay, the car won't move. Jay grimaced. This couldn't be happening. They were out in the middle of the forest and it was almost night. He returned to the car where Derry vainly pumped the gas pedal. May swigged Dr. Pepper nonchalantly in the back seat. So? She said. Are we walking home? Jay glanced at the deepening shadows. Trees looked like madmen with wild hair reaching maniacally into the evening sky. Derry, he said. Open the hood and give me the flashlight. Derry obeyed with some alacrity. He didn't like the dark. As Jay propped the hood open, a putrid stench wafted on the slight breeze. It wasn't rotting, yet it pierced his senses like a gas burning his brain. It jerked the tears from his eyes and made it hard to inhale. It tasted like sour sewer on his tongue. Where had it come from? Why hadn't he smelled it before? Wiping his face, he gazed in the wind's direction. Something stood about 300 feet behind the car. It was tall, straight, and black, just like the trees. Jay's heart seized up. Derry? He whispered, hoping May wouldn't suspect anything. Derry? What? Come here. The sound in Jay's voice made Derry unusually sensible. He got out of the car, shutting the door behind him. What's that? Jay nodded imperceptibly at the figure. Derry turned his head, and a small gasp escaped his lips. Is it a man? Then it's too tall to be a man. It's probably just a tree, Derry said. Jay handed his brother the flashlight and quickly checked the car fluids. The light in Derry's hand quivered. Hurry, Jay, he murmured. The sun ducked behind the mountains and the afterglow vanished. A cold blue lay on the world. The wind washed like freezing fingers over the pair. Find anything? The transmission fluid had leaked out. Jay glanced at the trunk of the car, where he had an extra container of fluid, and then at the figure against the trees. It seemed closer and bigger. It's just the shadows, Jay, he whispered to himself. He walked as calmly as possible to the trunk. He kept his eyes on the hulking figure, afraid to turn his back on it. But turn he did and grabbed the fluid. 
Derry let loose a gasping whimper. It's walking to us. He scrambled for his gun in the front seat. Jay glanced back without thinking. The creature was striding effortlessly towards him. He sprinted for the passenger door. What is it? May tried to look out the back window, but the still-open trunk blocked her view. Derry took aim at the creature. It was then that Jay realized what Derry was about to do. Derry, don't! But it was too late. Derry had fired. The thing collapsed on the spot without a sound. For some bizarre reason, May flung her door open and tried to get out, but Jay shoved her back inside. Don't move! He snapped. Mustering all the courage he had, he ran back to the trunk and yanked out the bottle of transmission fluid. Derry clutched the gun to his racing heart. Is it dead? Jay didn't answer as he poured the fluid recklessly into the car. Jay! Derry yelped. Jay peered around the hood and his heart went into his mouth. It was getting up. His breath grew short as he tossed the empty bottle to the side and screwed the cap back on. The thing stood on its feet just as Jay dropped the hood. Derry jumped behind the wheel and twisted the key in the ignition. The thing charged. Screaming, Derry floored the gas pedal. Jay dove into the passenger seat as the wheels kicked up dirt and pine needles. May? Jay searched wildly in the back for her. Here. May whispered from behind the driver's seat. She had curled into a ball on the floor, her jacket over her head. The car bounced and scraped over rocks and deep ruts in the road. Careful, Jay cried. His brother didn't answer. Dust plumed out from under the wheels, blood red in the car's backlights. Derry could crash them. Jay moved to buckle in. Grunting sounded just outside the door, like a huge bloody heart drumming from a rough throat. May curled into a tighter ball. What's that noise? Out of the corner of his eye, Jay spotted the hairy figure racing beside his window. It reached for the door handle. Gasping, Jay popped his lock down. The hairy man jiggled the handle in vain. It reached for the back door's handle, and Jay smacked that lock down too. May, lock your door, he shouted. May's hand zipped from under the jacket, pushed the lock down, and zipped back in. Great hairy hands batted at the windows. It tried to make eye contact through the glass. Jay covered his face as Derry hunched over, his shoulders blocking his side view. Suddenly, one of the hands slammed on the windshield. The rough, furry fingers could have wrapped around their heads. With an awful screech, Derry veered the car into the creature. The vehicle shuddered and skidded over the massive rocks lying in the gutter. The bottom grazed an unusually large, sharp stone. Derry gasped in relief. I got it. For a few minutes, it seemed that they'd be okay, but the car went slower and slower no matter what Derry did. The car shuddered and stopped. They were a mile from town. What do we do? What do we do? Derry pressed on the dead gas pedal. Shut up! Jay yanked out his phone. The phone's in range again. He dialed his dad. He didn't dare call Grant because Grant would kill him for putting May in danger. Immediately, a woman's annoying automated voice sounded. You have insufficient minutes to make this call. What's she mean I have no minutes? Jay stared at the phone as if it were evil. Derry said nothing, but May spoke up. Derry let his girlfriend use your phone to call her friend in California. What? Jay exploded as Derry sank low in his seat. And her face was all greasy, May added. Jay seized Derry roughly by the shirt, drew back his fist, and then realized May was in the car. She stared with big eyes. Jay shoved Derry against the window like so much refuse. We have to walk. I... Derry began. Shut up! Jay barked. May, let's go. But that thing's out there, Derry said. 
Jay didn't answer as he got out and took May's hand. Flicking on the flashlight, he hurried away. Derry watched a few seconds before realizing the hairy man might come to the car while he was in it. He jumped out and scurried after the pair. The moon had not yet risen, and the inky dark concealed their surroundings. No cars would be driving by on this lonely dirt road anytime soon. Jay walked so fast that May had to run to keep up. Derry remained close, almost clutching Jay's arm, but not daring to. The single shaft of light lit the road ahead. Every few seconds, Jay shined the beam into the forest. Every pass over the trees, the trio expected to see the hairy man. Jay. May squeezed his arm. I hear something. I don't hear nothing. Derry said, struggling to block out the sound of a fourth pair of footfalls behind them. Keep walking, May. Just look at the road, okay? Jay sniffed the cold air for the rancid stench of the monster, but nothing. The wind was blowing into their faces. My legs hurt. May whispered. Jay knelt on the ground. Get on my back. No. May whimpered. It might get me if I'm on your back. Jay shuddered. I'll hold you then. As he lifted her up, he glanced at the blackness behind them and gasped. There was a pair of glowing scarlet eyes several heads taller than Jay. It's here! May shouted and began to cry. Jay and Derry sprinted up the road. Town lights twinkled through the trees. Heavy footfalls thudded behind them, growing louder and louder. The town dogs yowled in terror as if a bear had wandered into town. May pressed her face into Jay's neck, every second expecting the hairy hands to grasp him and drag him back. Her uncle's gasps mingled with the heavy breathing behind them. Deep down, she knew that it was angry because Derry had shot it. Why was he so stupid? Everyone knew that you weren't supposed to shoot the hairy man. Even kindergartners knew that. A single orange streetlight lit an old house at the edge of the forest. Hope of escape injected strength into their aching legs. Never before had they run so far and so fast. The gaping dark echoed with the dirge of that bloody heartbeat. They stumbled onto the little back porch. Jay pounded on the door. The wailing of the dogs became like ghosts, screeching from the very pits of their unmarked tombs beneath the town. Let us in! Derry screamed. It's coming! No one opened the door. An empty, despairing wail cut through the crying dogs like a burning knife, and then abrupt silence. The trio froze where they huddled against the door, the air in their lungs sharp and quick. Their hearts hammered against their chests and pounded in their ears. Only one thought passed through them. The door wouldn't open. Something stood just beyond the circle of orange. A fog swirled from a certain point in the black and into the light. May clutched Jay's neck so tight that he could hardly breathe. His own strained breath smoked away from him, just like that fog in the light. And then, the hairy man stepped into view. Black hair nearly covered a savage, cruel face. Scarlet eyes glinted with hatred as an ugly grin wrinkled gnarled cheeks. It darted forward with more speed than it had shown before. The three shrieked in terror, and then the door opened. They tumbled in a heap on the floor as an old man shouted at them to get out of the way. He couldn't close the door. The hairy man leaped onto the porch in a low crouch, eyes burning like magma, as its would-be victims scrambled back. It took another leap, and the old man slammed the door shut in its face. The old wood shuddered on impact and bent inward. Snap, the old man locked the door, and the knob jiggled violently. Thud, thud. Thud went the hairy man's heavy steps as it loped around the house. 
the bloody heartbeat drummed. The frail wooden structure vibrated. Every knob in the house went chick, chick, chick. The windows strained, and every awful second they expected to hear glass shatter or a door creak open to let in the freezing autumn air. Four pairs of eyes followed the din of the hairy man round and round the house. It wasn't until around eight that the sounds gave way to crying dogs. The wails faded into silence, the quiet of safety. The monster had finally gone. Jay, said the old man softly. I'll drive you home. Jay finally realized that they were in Jimmy's house. The old man led them back out into the night and stuffed them into his truck. The three peered out of the windows at the houses and streetlights as Jimmy conveyed them back home. No breath stirred. Not a single person poked their heads out. No light escaped the tightly closed curtains. A few minutes later, their rescuer pulled into their driveway. Grant's car was there. A well of relief hit Jay like a wave, and he nearly broke down in tears. Without even a word of thanks, Derry and May dashed into the house. Jay, said Jimmy as he got out. You better stay out of the woods for a while. Yeah. Jay glanced warily around. Thanks for the ride. No problem. Jay closed the door and sped into the house. May was already telling her parents about the terrifying events from the safety of her mother's gentle arms. Jay made sure the front door was properly locked. Jay? Said Grant as he removed Derry's hat. The boy was in palpitations on the couch. You okay? Jay rubbed the back of his neck. I... I think I'm just gonna go to work tomorrow. He went straight to the shower. Turning the hot water on, he let it wash away the sweat and grime. The lulling sound of running water drowned out the night terrors and the dogs that once more took up their wailing somewhere by Jimmy's house. Oh, it's not that easy to leave the wicked library. There's still an interview with the author. But first, this... Hi, my name is Nelson Piles, and I'm the creator and executive producer of The Wicked Library. I wanted to talk to you a bit about one of our new sponsors, Warby Parker. This company was founded by four friends who came up with Warby Parker as an alternative to overpriced and frankly bland glasses. Prescription glasses shouldn't cost you as much as a trip to Europe or even an iPhone. And no one should have to go through the fun of visiting a mall looking for an eyeglasses joint to get raked over the coals financially. Well, with Warby Parker, you don't even have to leave your house. Go to warbyparker.com backslash wicked and look through the huge selection of frames, pick out five that you like, and they'll send them to your house to try them out. Pick out the frames that you want and send them back in a prepaid shipping box. You go back to the website and let them know the frames that you've picked out. Now, the next step is called Find Your Fit. And I did that test on my laptop with the help of Carly, one of the great customer service reps they have at Warby Parker. If you have an iPhone X, you can actually download an app and do it right from your phone. But Carly was awesome. She helped me upload my prescription as well. And the Find Your Fit app, well, what that does is it helps them adjust it so it's going to fit your face awesome. They got to work after everything was all done. And in less time than they told me it was going to take, I had a brand new pair of inexpensive and awesome looking progressive prescription sunglasses. Yeah, they do progressives too. So if you got bifocals like me, you are in luck. And all of this was done in the fraction of the time of going to a retail store, 
and getting all that stuff done and having to wait in line. This was all done super fast and super inexpensive. The glasses started like $95. When was the last time you could say that about a pair of sunglasses that you got? Or regular glasses. They do it all. I wound up with a great looking pair of affordable sunglasses that the librarian wants for himself. I'm just lucky he never goes outside in the daytime. So go to warbyparker.com backslash wicked and sign up for great looking and affordable glasses. You just can't beat it. That's warbyparker.com backslash wicked. Convenience, style, and most of all, affordability. Oh, and one more thing. Tell them the librarian sent you. (laughs) All right, Piles, now give me my glasses. (laughs) Go to warbyparker.com backslash wicked and look through the huge selection of frames, pick out five that you like, and they'll send them to your house to try them out. Today, my guest is Julia Benali, and we just heard your story, The Hairy Man. So tell me, what made this a story that you wanted to tell? Well, I started writing it, and it just started forming. And for me, when that happens, it's like, it's a keeper. Yeah, it's always good when the story tells you it wants to be told, right? Yeah, like, it just started appearing. Like, hey, look at me, I want to, you know, put me on the paper. So, that's what I did with it. And it was about Bigfoot. And who doesn't love a Bigfoot story? So we all know stories are hard to write. With this particular story, what was your biggest struggle and how did you overcome it? Well, my biggest struggle actually was making it, giving it like that extra spice. Because it started out at first as a coming of age story. And then as I was writing it, I was like, there is something missing. And I don't know what it is. I I was thinking about it for a long time time you know i only had like i I guess a few weeks to do it before i had to turn it in but so i went on drags and stuff and finally it was like girl you need a monster i was like a monster yeah that's it so so i thought well when you're out hunting and everything well bigfoot i just i just wanted bigfoot after a while so how does your perspective on bigfoot differ based upon your cultural heritage to me, I know so I know other cultures they they see him as like a, I guess like a, I guess kind of like a nature spirit or something. But here here on the Apache Res, he's a monster. Like don't even don't even bother with that thing. <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to dance with the hairy man. It's not like hanging out with Harry and the Hendersons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And every time someone tells a story around here, it's it's never good. Yeah, when I lived in Arizona, I had friends that were in day. And any anecdotes about the hairy man weren't happy stories. You didn't mess with them. So how many drafts did it take for you to get your original idea into its current form, the one we heard today? Uh, I reworked it about four times. First, it went. I used a lot of passive sentences. And there was just some parts in there. I was just like, you know, I, I got to cut that part. I have, that's kind of... I don't, you don't need that, you know? <laughs> it was like redundant. So it didn't really go through too much change. Just There's just a major change between the very first draft to the final where it was just a coming of age with no monsters or anything. And now it's, it's a monster story. 
Yeah, I always find it fascinating how stories change and adapt over time as you go back to them and work them through successive drafts, you know, from your original concept to where they end up. A lot of times they're completely different than what you started out with. Yeah. So for this story, what came first for you? Was it the characters or the situation, the plot? Well, this one, the characters actually came last for this one. Um, because I was, I was really just toiling around and messing with little ideas. And then after I got it together, then I was like, hmm, now it's time to, for the fun part, developing my characters. So I stuck them in. Yeah, you had some great characters in this. Uh, they really kind of brought the story to life, especially when you look at May and the dynamic between her and the other characters, where kind of in the first, you know, you have that sibling thing where she's just kind of a pest. But as the story goes on, you get to kind of see the maturity of the two boys as they become more protective of her when the chips are down. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. So tell me, what surprised you most about this story, either when you first started writing or by the time you got to the end of it? Actually, one of the ones that surprised me were the characters and their relationships with each other. Because, like I said before, I didn't realize that I had done that. I was like, hey. Look at that. That's kind of neat. <laughs> so. so because these characters were so vibrant, I have to ask, were they based upon anybody that you know? Are, are these folks that you know in real life or aspects of? Well, yeah, actually, um, like Derry, he reminded me of guys that I knew in my high school. <laughs> and the little girl is actually based off of a group of little girls. And they used to be my my little sister's friends, and they would come over and they'd just be crazy. <laughs> That's where I got her from. That's awesome. So, what attracts you to writing horror and speculative fiction? What's the draw for you that keeps you coming back to it? Well, I, I think I've answered this question like ten different times, and I've given ten different answers. <laughs> um, but um, mostly, I find it it's really really fun to do because I, I really love scaring people it makes me happy nothing wrong with doing something because it's fun and it and for me personally it adds a spice to it that other stories don't have and i like that it makes me feel something and it's not corny <laughs> you know reading is so important to continue to keep inspired and to kind of refill the well do you have certain favorite types of stories or certain genres that you turn to whenever you want to be entertained? Yeah, I actually really love reading um, crime mysteries. <laughs> and and I love fantasy. I love C.S. Lewis. And yeah, I, but yeah, I, I do love mysteries and suspense. And lots of times, like, when I'm reading something, it's kind of like the way I listen to music. If it catches me, it doesn't matter what genre it is. I'll, I'll just eat it up. You know, I wanted to ask you, because whenever I lived in Arizona, I had a lot of friends that were in Day and Danae. And one of the things that I found fascinating was how important oral storytelling was in those cultures. Uh, has that had any impact on you in terms of your love of telling a story and uh, your love of storytelling in general? Yeah, my, my grandma, she she would tell the freakiest ghost stories. Lots of times my dad would send me in the room and say, don't listen, you'll get nightmares. And my mom, she tells stories, and she's not Native American, she's actually from Hawaii. 
and she loves telling stories too and my dad and everybody <laughs> yeah they, they all just love telling it and they all go towards that like horror bent yeah i was lucky enough to sit in on some storytelling sessions with alton chung and he's a pretty well-known hawaiian storyteller and he told some of those traditional tales and some local stories and, and they all kind of had um you know, a, a kind of a horror event to them as well. So I think that's probably pretty common, or at least from my experience. I know my mom would tell me about the Night Watchers, and she'd also tell me, like, like local stories that she had from, like, her little neighborhood. And, um, something about a lady coming out of the sea. So those were, they freaked me out, but they were fun. Oh, yeah, the Night Marcher stories. Those are something. Uh, absolutely. So a lot of writers are curious, aspiring writers especially, what kind of rituals authors have to kind of get them into the right mindset. Do you have any specific rituals or anything that you do to kind of get you in the right frame of mind when you want to sit down and start writing? I don't really have any. I think maybe the closest is I like to be clean before I write, so I take a shower. Well, I find that that a lot of times helps clear the mind, absolutely. So what do you do if you get an idea kind of in the middle of the night, something that comes to you out of nowhere? How do you make sure you don't lose that idea? Well, a lot of times I'll write the idea down in a notebook first in the middle of the night, <laughs> and then I'll put it on a computer later. Yeah, I think some of the best ideas come to us like that in the middle of the night, but uh, if you don't take the time to jot it down or do something, you lose it. Yeah. The only time where the idea won't go away is if it's really, really freaky, and then I scare myself, and then it haunts me. So, <laughs> and then I don't have to write it down. I just wait until morning, and I don't kind of don't want to write it down in the middle of the night. I'll just scare myself some more. <laughs> well, that's true. So, since we're talking about things that scare you, what does a good story have to do to keep you interested, to keep you scared? Okay. Well, for me. Um, a lot of suspense and build up, but then when it actually gets to the, you know, what whatever it's called, the climax, it, it has to deliver. I've read a lot where there was a lot of suspense and then it just fell flat. I was like, what? No. But And then, too, I like it if the threat is, like, constantly there, you know, poking its head in, bothering and everything, and... and it's just building and building and building mm -hmm. and to the point where I just want to scream. Oh, yeah. I like screaming. <laughs> but, yeah, um, that's what it needs to do for me. Yeah, nice ongoing dread. Huh? Yeah, that slow build that just doesn't let go. It just keeps building. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, just, um, there was the, that one show, um, Sleeping with the Enemy, and that build up, that suspense, till you came I just I could hardly handle it I'm like oh my gosh but I loved it you know oh yeah absolutely yeah it's funny I, I just talked about that movie with our, our last author so two two weeks in a row it's come up good movie so what is a book or a story that you've read that really changed the way that you looked at the world or your place in it well I'd say the Chronicles of Narnia. Ah, great. Because um, when I was a little girl and I had all these emotions inside me and people would ask, why are you acting like this if I, you know, if I did something bad? <laughs> and I didn't know why. 
I couldn't articulate it. And so when I started reading, you know, C.S. Lewis and, you know, Magician's Nephew and all of those, he he would sometimes, he would switch into second person and he would directly talk to the person who was reading. And he would explain the little feelings that the characters had, you know, and things like, uh, you know, how you're, you're so tired that you don't want to get up and you just want to sit there, you know, and you can't fall asleep because you're so tired. Or you you acted like this because this happened, you know, that made you upset. And it it really opened my eyes of like, hey, that that's what I'm feeling. That's how I feel. And he was able to help me understand myself better. That's excellent. Yeah, he had a very unique way of using second person that you don't see used a lot in stories today. I mean, second person isn't a very common viewpoint, and it's even less common done well. But I think that the way that he did it, and if it is done well, it really brings you into the story space and makes you a part of that story. Yeah. Yeah, he made me feel like I was there, like I really was in the story. Like I was sitting next to him and he was telling me this story, you know, and and like it didn't matter what nationality you were, whatever, you were part of Narnia. That's what it felt like to me. Yeah, and I really think that's most authors' goal is to make you feel like you're in the story, that it's happening to you and with you. And the fact that he was able to do that so effectively was really cool. So where can listeners find more of your work? People listen to the story today. They want more of you. Where can they go to find more of your work? On my blog, it's at sparrowincarnate.blogspot.com. Ah, so that's where you keep all the good stuff, right? Yeah, it's, it's like my, it's my database. <laughs> you can find everything there. So is there anything that's coming out soon or they came out recently that your readers and today's listeners can look for? Yeah, yeah, I actually have one coming out in September in the Scarlet Leaf Review. It's called Midnight Dreams, and it's going to be my first fantasy ever published. <laughs> so I'm excited for that. Oh, that's excellent. And um, in July, I had, in the horror zine, I had Headlights, Headlights. come out. And then um, around the exact same time, um, and I had another one come out called Beautiful Dream. And that one is in the Hellbound Books Anthology, Graveyard Girls. That's excellent. So you've been busy. you got a lot of stuff that's coming out, that has come out, and still working on more. So now that you are becoming so prolific, what advice would you give to younger you when you were starting out writing? Well, um, I would tell myself that. You're not as good as you think, and you need to work on it, <laughs> on your writing. Because um, I did a lot of, like, reading on blogs and stuff, trying to figure out what is, what am I doing? Because when I first started, I was like, hey, I am so great. <laughs> and then as it started going on, and I was reading other people's stuff, and I was reading all of their info from their blogs, I was like, wait a minute, I can use that. I've never done that before. You know, and just, I guess, just have an open mind when someone comes to you with a new rate, a way to use your writing and how to improve it. Listen and use it and utilize it so you can learn it and then you just become better that way. I think that's great advice. 
I know so many great writers that are so humble about their work, but I also know a few who think they're a lot better than they are. So that's always good to keep in mind that you can keep learning and keep growing. Yeah. And I guess especially if you um, if you have improved really good and people do say you're a great writer, do not forget that there's still more things to learn and that there's always somebody better that you can look up to. So final question, what's the best way for your fans to reach out to you and interact with you? On Twitter, um, at Sparrow Cove. So it's a capital S. P-A-R-R-O-W capital C-O-V-E Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today and for sending your story in. I hope everybody enjoys it. And, uh, you know, it's funny. Everybody's hearing this interview at the end of the show and you haven't heard your story yet. So I hope you enjoy your story. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm excited. Thanks again. And now, something new and special. You'll get to hear the first story of Wicked Fairy Tales as told by your librarian. This is a new series we're doing for our $5 a month and above supporters. It'll be exclusive to them, so if you'd like access to the rest of these stories once a month, you can sign up over at patreon.com forward slash wicked library or over at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash subscribe. It does take a wicked amount of money and a wicked amount of time to make this show come to fruition, so we wanted to do something to reward those that were supporting us at the $5 a month and above level. So you might ask, why fairy tales? Well, first, because there are so many great, darker versions of these fairy tales that are not explored anywhere in modern media. I mean, everybody's heard Snow White and Hansel and Gretel and all those done a million times to death, but there's so many more that you never hear. Folk and fairy tales originally weren't for kids. They were told by the adults for the adults. And if they were told to kids, they were cautionary tales. They were supposed to scare you. They're really, in a lot of ways, the first horror stories. So, without further ado, The Goose Girl, as told by your librarian. The Goose Girl, collected by Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm. There once lived an old queen whose husband had been dead for many years, and she had a beautiful daughter. When the princess grew up, she was promised in marriage to a prince who lived far away. When the time came for her to be married, and she had to depart for the distant kingdom, the old queen packed up her many costly vessels and utensils of silver and gold, and trinkets of also gold and silver, and cups and jewels, in short, everything that belonged to a royal dowry, for she loved her child with all her heart. She likewise assigned to her a chambermaid, who was to ride with her and deliver her into the hands of the bridegroom. Each received a horse for the journey. The princess's horse was called Falada and could speak. When the hour of departure had come, the old mother went to her bedroom, took a small knife and cut her fingers with it until they bled. Then she held out a small white cloth and let three drops of blood fall into it. She gave them to her daughter, saying, Take good care of these. They will be of service to you on your way. Thus they sorrowfully took leave of one another. The princess put the cloth into her bosom, mounted her horse, and set forth for her bridegroom. 
After they had ridden a while, she felt a burning thirst and said to her chambermaid, Dismount and take my cup, which you have brought with you for me, and get me some water from the brook, for I would like a drink. If you are thirsty, said the chambermaid, get off your horse yourself and lie down near the water and drink. I won't be your servant. So in her great thirst, the princess dismounted, bent over the water in the brook and drank, and she was not allowed to drink out of the golden cup. Then she said, O oh Lord, and the three drops of blood answered, If your mother knew this, her heart would break in two. But the king's daughter was humble. She said nothing and mounted her horse again. They rode some miles further. The day was warm, the sun beat down, and she again grew thirsty. When they came to a stream of water, she again called to her chambermaid, Dismount and give me some water in my golden cup, for she had long ago forgotten the girl's evil words. But the chambermaid said still more haughtily, If you want to drink, get it yourself. I won't be your servant. Then, in her great thirst, the king's daughter dismounted, bent over the flowing water, and wept, and said, O oh Lord! And the drops of blood again replied, If your mother knew this, her heart would break in two. As she was thus drinking, leaning over the stream, the cloth with the three drops of blood fell from her bosom and floated away with the water, without her taking notice of it, so great were her concerns. However, the chambermaid saw what happened and she rejoiced to think that she now had power over the bride, for by losing the drops of blood, the princess had become weak and powerless. When she wanted to mount her horse again, the one that was called Falada, the chambermaid said, I belong on Falada, you belong on my nag, and the princess had to accept it. Then, with many harsh words, the chambermaid ordered the princess to take off her own royal clothing and put on the chambermaid's shabby clothes. And in the end, the princess had to swear under the open heaven that she would not say one word of this to anyone at the royal court. If she had not taken this oath, she would have been killed on the spot. Falada saw everything and remembered it well. The chambermaid now climbed on to Falada and the true bride on the bad horse, and they thus traveled onwards until finally they arrived at the royal palace. There was great rejoicing over their arrival, and the prince ran ahead to meet them, then lifted the chambermaid from her horse, thinking she was his bride. She was led upstairs, while the real princess was left standing below. Then the old king looked out the window and saw her waiting in the courtyard and noticed how fine and delicate and beautiful she was. So at once he went to the royal apartment and asked the bride about the girl she had with her, who was standing down below in the courtyard, and who she was. I picked her up on my way for a companion. Give the girl some work to do so she won't stand idly by. However, the old king had no work for her and knew of nothing else to say but... I have a little boy who tends the geese. She can help him. The boy was called Kurjin, Little Conrad, and the true bride had to help him tend the geese. Soon afterwards, the false bride said to the young king, Dearest husband, I beg you to do me a favor. He answered, I will do so gladly. Then send for the knacker and have the head of the horse which I rode here cut off, for it angered me on the way. 
In truth, she was afraid that the horse might tell how she had behaved toward the king's daughter. Thus, it happened that faithful Falada had to die. The real princess heard about this and secretly promised to pay the knacker a piece of gold if he would perform a small service for her. In the town, there was a large dark gateway through which she had to pass with the geese each morning and evening. Would he be so good as to nail Falada's head beneath the gateway so that she might see him again and again? The knacker's helper promised to do that and cut off the head and nailed it securely beneath the dark gateway. Early in the morning, when she and Conrad drove out their flock beneath this gateway, she said in passing, Alas, Falada hanging there. Then the head answered, Alas, young queen passing by, if this your mother knew, her heart would break in two. Then they went still further out of the town, driving their geese into the country. And when they came to the meadow, she sat down and unbound her hair, which was of pure gold. Conrad saw it, was delighted how it glistened, and wanted to pluck out a few hairs. Then she said, Blow, wind, blow, take Conrad's hat, and make him chase it, until I have braided my hair and tied it up again. Then such a strong wind came up that it blew Conrad's hat across the fields, and he had to run after it. When he came back, she was already finished combing and putting up her hair, so he could not even get one strand. So Conrad became angry and would not speak to her, and thus they tended the geese until evening, and then they went home. The next morning, when they were driving the geese out through the dark gateway, the maiden said, Alas, Falada, hanging there. Falada answered, Alas, young queen passing by, if this your mother knew, her heart would break in two. She sat down again in the field and began combing out her hair. When Conrad ran up and tried to take a hold of some, she quickly said, Blow, wind, blow, take Conrad's hat and make him chase it until I have braided my hair and tied it up again. Then the wind blew, taking the hat off his head and far away. Conrad had to run after it, and when he came back, she had already put up her hair, and he could not get a single strand. Then they tended the geese until evening. That evening, after they had returned home, Conrad went to the old king and said, I won't tend geese with that girl any longer. Why not? asked the old king. Oh, because she angers me all day long. Then the king ordered him to tell what was that she did to him. Conrad said, In the morning when we pass beneath the dark gateway with the flock, there is a horse's head on the wall, and she says to it, Alas, Falada hanging there. And the head replies, Alas, young queen passing by, if this your mother knew, her heart would break in two. Then Conrad went on to tell what happened at the goose pasture and how he had to chase his hat. The old king ordered him to drive his flock out again the next day. As soon as morning came, he found himself sat down behind the dark gateway and heard how the girl spoke with Falada's head. Then he followed her out into the country and hid himself in a thicket in a meadow. There he saw soon with his own eyes the goose girl and the goose boy bringing their flock, 
and how after a while she sat down and took down her hair, which glistened brightly. Soon, she said, Blow, wind, blow. Take Conrad's hat and make him chase it until I have braided my hair and tied it up again. Then came a blast of wind and carried off Conrad's hat so that he had to run far away while the maiden quietly went on combing and braiding her hair, all of which the king observed. Then, quite unseen, he went away, and when the goose girl came home in the evening, he called her aside and asked why she did all these things. I am not allowed to tell you, nor can I reveal my sorrows to any human being, for I have sworn under the open heaven not to do so, and if I had not so sworn, I would have been killed. He urged her and left her no peace, but he could get nothing further from her. Finally, he said, if you will not tell me anything, then tell your sorrows to the iron stove there. And he went away. So she crept into the iron stove and began to cry sorrowfully, pouring out her whole heart. She said, here I sit abandoned by the whole world, although I am the daughter of a king. A false chambermaid forced me to take off my royal clothes, and she has taken my place with my bridegroom. Now I have to do common work as a goose girl. If my mother knew this, her heart would break in two. The old king was standing outside listening by the stovepipe, and he heard what she said. Then he came back inside and asked her to come out of the stove. But that the true one was standing there the one who had been a goose girl. The young king rejoiced with all his heart when he saw her beauty and virtue. A great feast was made ready to which all the people and all good friends were invited. At the head of the table sat the bridegroom with the king's daughter on one side of him and the chambermaid on the other. However, the chambermaid was deceived, for she did not recognize the princess in her dazzling attire. After they had eaten and drunk, and were in good mood, the old king asked the chambermaid a riddle. What punishment a person deserved who had deceived her master in such and such a manner? Then told the whole story, asking finally, What sentence does such a person deserve? The false bride said, She deserves no better fate than to be stripped stark naked and put in a barrel that is studded inside with sharp nails. Two white horses should be hitched to it, and they should drag her along through one street after another until she is dead. You are the one, said the old king, and you have pronounced your own sentence. Thus shall it be done to you. After the sentence had been carried out, the young king married his true bride, and both of them ruled over their kingdom in peace and happiness. Of course, I'm sure the barrel still needs to be cleaned. <laughs> oh, Conrad! <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get wicked fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. 
The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. The Wicked Library is proud to have Booth Junkie as one of our Season 8 partners. Booth Junkie is a YouTube channel dedicated to the tech of at-home professional voiceover, created by the very talented Mike Delgadio. If you've ever been interested in getting into voiceover, seeing what goes into voice work, or just can't get enough of Mike's voice, it's a great channel to watch. You can find the channel by going over to boothjunkie.com. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes page. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for the hairy man to find you.